Hi there, this is Pastor Tim. I'm the minister at Eastside Church. We are a United Methodist congregation in East Atlanta Village. We seek to be creative, historic, and inclusive. And we are thrilled that you found our podcast. If you'd like to learn more about our church community, you can visit us at www.eastsideatl.org. It is, it's good to be with you all in worship this morning at Eastside, whether you are in body, in the physical space, or in the digital land of the live stream. We are glad that you are here, and if you are a guest with us, we hope that you have felt warmly welcomed thus far this morning by our community, but, but more than that, throughout the past weeks or months, or even if you've been attending throughout the past year, we hope that you have felt as welcomed as possible as we recognize it in this season to be searching for a church home. It is a strange time to be finding your place if you're new to Atlanta in the midst of the pandemic and you're trying to find where you fit. We welcome you and just a, a reminder that the staff is here to answer any questions, to, to work with you in any way that we can to help you find your place in this sort of hybrid season as we slowly regather and slowly reorient ourselves to embodied ministry and embodied worship. Um, if you're a guest, we want to do everything we can to make you feel um, a part of what we're doing. And just again, a reminder, if you've not filled out that online check-in form to do so, whether you're in, in the space or in the digital space, that helps us so much to know um, how, to, how to pastor the congregation and to look out for the flock and to keep up with you all. Well, this morning brings us to the second Sunday in our sort of front end of the summertime teaching series that we've named Foraging. And if you were with us here at Eastside from Holy Week to Easter and then what followed, we made the comparison or the association or the parallel between sort of the, the trauma the Holy Week would have been, not, not obviously not just for Jesus, but for his whole movement and his followers, that trauma and, and how it may have paralleled the, the trauma on our world that we experienced in the pandemic last year, and, and further, the trauma that, that we experienced through the wildfires that were yet again historic. And in our own country, there were historic numbers of acres burnt last year in the midst of everything. There was, there was smoke in the, in the skyline of Los Angeles last summer because the fires were so bad. And we began to, to, to make this parallel between a forest that has undergone this, this trauma of a fire and, and God's work of resurrection life, the, the work that we do together at Easter liturgically in recognizing the empty tomb of Christ and recognizing God's defeat of death and asking questions about what that, that empty tomb 2,000 years ago, what does it mean today as, as a, a forest that's undergone that, the chaos that comes with, with a wildfire? Even, even when the fire moves on, that there's still a story ahead for that land and for, for many of those huge trees that live on through the fire through the process of regrowth. And we lived through those sequences and those layers of regrowth 
that happens in a forest after it's been decimated. And, and then essentially now we're asking the question if, if the world is sort of coming through this trauma and even though the trauma is still there, it still exists, the, the pandemic's not done, at the same time, there is growth happening, there is life happening, there is newness happening on the other side of this. And, and what is our calling as a people of faith to begin to become aware, to engage, to, to put our heads back up and to go back outside and to see where it is that God is at work in our world and how it is that we might engage with what God is doing in the world and in our own lives. So how can we use this, this parallel, this image of forager, of foraging, and how we're engaging a, a, a hopefully soon-to-be post-pandemic world? If you were tuned in for the first reading, you notice that it came from the Old Testament, and Moses, who was dealing with a, a cranky group of former enslaved Hebrews out in the wilderness, and essentially they had run out of water, which is never good for a mass of people in the midst of the wilderness. And they're pretty, pretty angry with Moses at this point because they're pretty afraid they're all going to die. And Essentially, there's this back and forth in this famous text, and, and God tells Moses, take your staff and, and hit that rock twice. And Moses does, and water flows forth from the rock. There's provision, there's sustenance. God provides. And I think that's a really powerful text to, to keep in mind when we move then this morning to our, to our gospel reading that we're going to look at from Jesus and Matthew in, in the Sermon on the Mount, in Jesus' words. So keep, keep Moses and the rock and the thirsty Hebrews in your imaginations as we read this text with, with Jesus and a, a whole flock, a whole host, a whole crowd of ancient Jewish peasants listening to him. For those in the room who are able, I invite you to stand for the reading of God's word. For those who are tuning in digitally, I invite you to embrace a posture that allows you to receive the sacred words of Scripture. As I read, I invite you to listen for the Word of God. And Jesus speaks to the crowd. Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat, what you will drink, your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than food? Is not the body more than clothing? I mean, look at the birds of the air. They don't sow, they don't reap, they don't gather in barns, yet your heavenly maker feeds them. Are you not of more value than the birds? Can any of you, by worrying, add one single hour to your span of life? And why do you worry about clothing? And think about the lilies of the field, how they grow. They don't spin, they don't toil. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all of his glory was not clothed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will not God much more clothe you of little faith? Therefore, don't worry, saying, what are we going to eat? What, what, what are we going to drink? What are we going to wear? the Gentiles who strive for these things. 
And indeed, your, your heavenly maker knows that you need them. No, strive first for the kingdom of God and God's righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Don't worry about tomorrow. Tomorrow will bring worries of its own. Today's trouble is enough for today. Friends, the word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Holy and gracious God, I ask that these words that I have prepared might be your word for your people in this time. I ask God that you would speak through them and where necessary that you would speak in spite of me. And as I preach, God, I ask that the words of my mouth and the collective meditation of all of our hearts would indeed be found good, right, pleasing, and acceptable in your sight. God, our rock, God, our redeemer, God, our provider, our sustainer, all of this, we pray in the strong name of Jesus the Christ. Amen. Friends, you may be seated. As I read this, this text, this passage from Jesus in 2021, and I've preached on this text before, it's, it's actually one of my, been one of the more impactful texts of scripture for me throughout my, throughout my Christian life. But what really hit me, a few things hit me in fresh ways, but the first thing that really hit me across the, my being, if you will, was was how counter it runs to, to sort of the, the pace or the flow, I guess, of, of the Western world in which we live. I don't know if I'm the only one that gets this sense, but there's like this perpetual outward flowing like tide in the West. It's like a giant river going in a direction. And if you're not sort of like with it going with the direction of things, then you're, you're kind of fighting this massive current of, of what's happening. And, and with this, there's just this sense of like, from the moment we're born into the world and can begin to speak, right? There's this anxiety within parents because they want to make sure that their kid, what, like, learns to talk fast enough and doesn't take too long to roll over or walk or whatever. And there's just all of this proactive parenting that we want to do, and then, of course, when they're in school, right, we want to make sure that they're not falling behind in this or in that, you know, and this, all the stuff with the pandemic, education that's happening all over, I'm sure they'll be studying this for years and years to come, and in all of this, there's this huge capacity and experience that many people have of anxiety, because why? Because there's the force, right, not the Star Wars one, but this giant Western cultural push. Our kids are supposed to be advancing and growing and developing and getting smarter, quicker, faster than the other kids, right? Or if we're in sports, don't even get me started on that whole mess. It's this race to get there first. And I don't know when it started in the Western world, but it seems like if, as we study history, if you look at colonialism, you begin to see it pretty quickly. And you got the different little, you know, European groups who sort of start racing out to the 
further reaches of, the, of different continents trying to set down colonies so that they have their say on this part of whatever, India or Africa or the Middle East. Eventually, of course, our continent gets involved in all of that mess, and that goes well. But since, at least since colonialism, there's been this human race to get in front of the other, to get there first, to get our stake down. And of course, the irony with colonialism is that nobody got there first except for the native people who were already there, but that's a whole different conversation. And then, you know, there was the race to space, and I'm not sure what we thought we were going to beat the Russians and, like, get on the moon. Was there, like, I don't know, popcorn machine up there that we wanted to beat them to? But the race to space was a big deal, to get our flag on the moon, to be the first one in line. And, and, and I experienced this growing up as a, as a young child simply because of the fact that I grew up with six children in my family. And if when my mother said it was time for dinner, if I ignored her, and I showed up late to dinner after the family had prayed and everyone had sat down and my older brother had already gotten seconds, his seconds were probably my firsts. It was not uncommon for us to eat all the food in my family because there were six children. We did not have a large refrigerator. So my mother did not like a lot of leftovers. So she would really try with sort of pinpoint targeted accuracy to, to cook precisely the amount that our family needed. And oftentimes, she was right on the money, which meant that if you were at a rehearsal that night or at a meeting or got home late, you may be making yourself a peanut butter and jelly before bed. The race, the feeling that we're always being pushed from behind or pulled from in front, and if we stop, the feeling of anxiety that starts to build in us because we're like, I'm supposed to be doing something. What am I supposed to be doing right now? I'm not, I'm not supposed to just stand here. I'm not supposed to just sit. I'm not supposed to just be, right? There's, there's something that I should be doing that is not necessarily a reality that is transcultural, that is pan-historic, that has always been the case everywhere for all people. Maybe there are th some anthropologists who would want to make that argument about some things, but I'm not sure in the way that we experience it in the Western world, especially now with the flow of information from the internet and technology. I don't know that human beings in our bodies have ever experienced this level of intensity, constantly pushing and flowing into us and, and, and pushing through us. It's a lot. It's a lot. And Jesus' words this morning, they're only 2,000 years ago. And it's, you know, on the one hand, that sounds like a long time. On the other hand, it doesn't sound that long ago. Humans essentially were the same biological realities 2,000 years ago that they are today. But they lived in a world and a society and a culture that was completely different than ours. Right? Smartphones, TVs, news, media. All of these things, none of it were a part of their world. Yet, even in that culture, in that world, in that time, of, of the very small amount that we have recorded of what Jesus actually said, they found it important enough 
And it was an important enough thing for them back then, before they had all the crap that we have to deal with in this iteration of reality, Jesus' words on anxiety and worry still made the canon, still made the book of Matthew, and in a pretty profound way. Jesus made it a point because even people then and there were experiencing fear and anxiety and wondering about this sort of, this sort of race to get there first. We're taught from a young age that it's better to be at the front of the line than at the end, because we all know that whatever good thing you're getting in line for, by the time the end gets there, it might be gone, right? We're taught from a young age it's better to be there first. And the more I've thought about this sort of juxtaposition of these worlds, there's multiple worlds happening here. There's our world that we live in. There's the, the world that Jesus lived in with his people. But then there's the world that Jesus is pointing to in the text, the illustration he's using. And I think it's really interesting if you actually think about all the ways that Jesus could have talked about provision or anxiety or worry about the future. What does he do? But he points to very specific things in nature. Maybe, maybe there were birds in view as he was teaching. Maybe there were lilies over to the side. But as he talks about them, it, it strikes me that when he talks about birds and when he talks about lilies, he points out very clearly the fact that they are provided for and they're provided for well and that they do absolutely nothing for that provision. The lilies don't dress themselves. They just grow beautifully. Birds, they don't f know how to farm. Spoiler alert, birds don't farm. <laughs> they don't, and they're not going to figure it out. And that's just true. They just eat the stuff that grows. They're lazy. All they do is eat all day, right? No. But we're Westerners, so to us, a being that eats all day and doesn't plant and grow and make and buy the stuff that they eat must be lazy. But that's not in nature. That's manufactured. It's amazing. And lilies, they just, they're just beautiful. They don't put on makeup. They don't iron clothes. They don't go to whatever, Saks Fifth Avenue. They just are. And Jesus, he's most likely preaching to the, to the poor peasant class of his Jewish people. And, you know, most scholars make the argument that it's pretty clear that Jesus has a heart for the, under, the underbelly, the, 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 those at the bottom rung of the social ladder in, in society. You can feel that in the blesseds of, of chapter 5, the Beatitudes, Jesus is probably preaching to people who either have recent memory of, of a hungry belly, of actual hunger, not of like perceived hunger, or of actual, in those moments, he could be preaching to people who have hungry bellies while he's talking about birds and flowers for context, which I think is important to keep in mind. 
because it's not the, the context of a passage. Jesus isn't preaching to probably a group of like wealthy middle-class people about anxiety. He, he's not preaching probably here to like a group of suburban wealthy religious leaders in Judaism. He's probably preaching to folks who know what actual day-by-day sustenance, provision, and the experience of hunger for themselves or for their family actually feels like. And it's in that context that he's willing to talk about the birds and the lilies. Because Jesus knows, and he actually says it outright, but he knows that at least they know that they are indeed more important than birds or flowers. Even poor people in Jesus' time, and Jesus says it, you know you are more important than birds or flowers. I'm glad Jesus names it. But his point here is really remarkable, and I don't know how I've missed this in the past, but I think what Jesus is trying to say is this sort of meta-reality, is that God has created a world in which the world itself sort of has this natural capacity, right, to create and to produce the stuff that the living beings in and on the world need to live. The birds don't know how to farm, and they don't farm. They just eat. It's all birds do, just eat and make noise, some better than others. So then when you bring foraging in is, is this, this sort of moder- like this thing worth thinking about in the 21st century, which I kind of love because I've, never, I've not encountered another sermon series on foraging. Um, I didn't Google it to see, but I, I've never encountered it, and, 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 which makes it sort of this fascinating analogy to play with and to think about in our own lives in this sort of post-foraging world, right? Because we don't really live in a foraging society. Some of you have probably read the New York, best, New York Times bestseller, Sapiens. And in that, in that book, the author speaks to the fact that, of course, human beings at one point, we were generally hunters and gatherers, read foragers, and then we learned how to farm. And it wasn't until we learned how to farm, it seems to be that most anthropologists make the argument that it was then that we began to experience abundance of food, so like more food than we needed to survive. And at the same time, that's also when we started fighting and killing each other in large groups. <laughs> abundance, farming, and now we fight. It's just amazing, human beings. And, but, but when we were hunters and gatherers in the, in the sort of foraging, living off the land and the sustenance of the Creator, it's, I don't know if it's just as though we were more focused and in tune with nature and with life and with necessity, that we didn't have the extra mental energy to dream up a battle between our tribe and the next tribe over, to fight over that plot of land, or if we just didn't have anything to fight about yet. I don't know. But I think it's a fascinating question to think about, and I think it's especially fascinating to, when you think about the fact that humans haven't always farmed. It's, in, it's, it's a newer invention in our species, and, 
And we haven't always fought the way that we fight. I'm sure we always fought to some extent, just observing the behavior in my own household. But I don't know that in the large group warfare sense that humans always fought the way that we fight now. And Jesus points the people to a simpler time, to birds of the air, to lilies of the field, getting what they need, not worrying about the next day. And I wonder if part of what Jesus is getting at is that humans have created an addiction to overabundance. We've created an addiction to storehouses. We've created an addiction through probably from farming is one of the first iterations of this to having more than a day's supply. And when generation after generation after generation wakes up and that's the norm, for somebody to come along, some rabbi out in the hills of Galilee starts saying, no, you should be a lot more like the birds or the lilies, it does sound crazy. What do you mean no storehouse is full of grain? Right? What do you mean living day by day? What do you mean trusting in the maker to provide? That sounds, that sounds like communism or something. I don't know. See what I did there, Jesus, communism? Anyway. But, but we humans are the only ones who farm. No, no other animal kingdom participants do. They're all hunters and gatherers. They're all foragers to some extent or another. And I do think that is fascinating to think about that the sort of like default of the planet is foraging, is the planet providing for itself and us living off of it, taking as much as we need for a day and no more. All of which I think gets Jesus to the thesis of this section, which is this statement that is, is prophetic then as it is now, and it's verse 27. Who of you, by worrying, has the capacity and the power to add a single hour to your life? Show me. Show me the, the science and, and how your overwhelming anxiety is, is making your life better and is adding time to your life. No, we, we know that, we know that, a, that a moderate amount of stress, low to moderate, keeps us moving in a good direction, keeps us thinking about tomorrow, and that's, a, that's good. It's good for us to have a plan, to, to be, in some sense, not just you know, living in the immediate moment all the time. It is good to, to do some forethought, but we know that when that, those, those chemicals in our bodies kind of reach a certain level and tip over, we actually become way less capable of thinking about tomorrow or about planning for the day after that or about creating a plan of action to take care of ourselves or our family or our society. In fact, what happens is, is, is anxiety can kind of turn on us and rob us of our ability to think clearly and to think at all. And Jesus must know this because he speaks it to the crowd and he says, who of you by worrying, by dreading, has added a single hour to your life? And I think 
If Jesus were to elaborate on this, he would say that from the beginning, we can see that the design of creation in the book of Genesis is that it includes humans and that humans take care of creation and creation takes care of humans. There's a garden that creates food that the humans live off of and we're to tend to the garden and keep the whole thing, the whole ecology working together. God created a world that is meant to be self-sustaining, a world in which we don't have to clear a giant plot of land and bulldoze everything on it and then till up all the soil and then bring seed in and then tend to the seed to get the right things to grow. Modern farming and agriculture. I mean, because of the population density, those are absolute necessities now. We can't get around modernized farming in the world today. But there, there may have been a time where it would, wasn't necessary. And, and this got me thinking, because we are in the situation in which we are with um, moving close to 8 billion people on the planet, is there any reason for any of us to even bother doing as Roxy talked about in the video at the beginning and learning the practice of foraging? Is it a waste of time, since we know that farming has to happen anyway? And then I started to play through this, and I thought to myself, well, I guess since there's supermarkets, and they have refrigerators, I guess you could make the argument that I don't need a refrigerator in my house. I could just go to the supermarket and buy the food that I need. Then I went even a step further from that and said, well, like, do I even need food preparation in my house? I mean, you know, I don't think, I'm thinking Manhattan, a lot of people have learned to live without it. So, do I need a kitchen? Or can I just, like, go to one of the restaurants? There's a McDonald's on every corner. They sell food, right? I mean, you can take this about as far as you want. Like, do we need to even learn to cook? We can just have a delivery person bring us Chinese when we're hungry. Or Thai. I'm getting hungry. <laughs> but no, we don't, we don't go down that route. We don't say, well, because there's MARTA buses, I don't need to know how to drive a vehicle. Or because there's fill in the blank. No, because there's something innately good about learning, learning and cooking and cutting and preparing a meal. Something innately good about that that connects you with humans and with the divine. There's something innately good about being able to go and purchase some groceries and bring them home and store them for a few days and make meals in that context. We know that a lot better now due to the pandemic. It is good to know, friends, just because we have giant industrial farms, it doesn't mean that we shouldn't know how to grow our own food in our own backyard. We, shouldn't, we should learn how to garden. We should try. Does that mean that we rely 100% on the food that we grow from our garden to sustain us, to keep us alive? No. Does that mean we have to cook 100% of the food that we consume? No. Does that mean that we can only eat what we forage if we embrace the practice of foraging? Of course not. Nobody, nobody means that. But I think that Roxy 
is on to something with this idea of foraging as a, a spiritual practice that as we re-engage the world, it is different and it's going to continue to be different. And it has undergone great trauma and it continues to undergo great trauma. But the beauty of our God and the beauty of the resurrection is that even in trauma and in death and in the ashes that we can see and the smoldering that is around us on this planet, we, we believe that God is at work planting new things and growing new things, rebirthing things that have, have died, we believe that pioneer species that we talked about several weeks ago have had the opportunity in the wake of the devastation to take root and to take foot in places that otherwise they maybe never would have had the space to. The world is, is changing. It's changed and it's changing. And what if we engage with this, with this sort of analogy of a forager going out into a woods looking for nuts and berries and wild mushrooms, looking for fresh sources of water. What if we, on, at one level, actually do that? I'm sure Roxy would be happy to take a group of us out into an actual woods and show us how to do this and to do it with us. At the same time, what does it look like to, to do this work and to begin to do this work, and we're going to talk about this more next Sunday, but inwardly and in and with our own selves, and to begin to, to think about foraging as the practice of, of observing, of looking, of curiosity, of paying attention, of seeing what's here. If you step foot into a new forest and you're just looking, what if the first step in that process for many of us spiritually is to step foot and look at the space in ourselves and say, it's been a hell of a year. And what is in, what is in me right now? Where, what, is, what is me? For real, like, wh where, where and how has this impacted who I am and who I'm becoming? As, as a forager prepares their physicality to go out into the woods, they put on the proper clothes and they Make sure they take the right supplies, and probably this time of year they put on some kind of all-natural mosquito repellent. We need to do the same in our own personal spiritual lives and do inventory to ask, are we ready to, to begin to turn outward, and what do we need to see in ourselves first? What curiosity do we need to bring, and how do we need to prepare? And then we begin to, to wonder, as Roxy said. We begin to, to look out into the new world that is, and we begin to pay attention, and pay attention closely, and with curiosity, looking for discovery, asking new and different questions, not just coming at the world for what we can get out of it, so, so a good forager doesn't necessarily come saying, I just want this kind of mushrooms. No, you come open and aware and curious to discover and say, I'm curious what's out here and what 
what I might be impacted by. It's a different operative way of being, and it's not one that says that I have to have this and I'm going to take that, but I'm going to enter into this new phase of the world and see how I might be useful and see how I might be a blessing and see how I might be blessed by the new world that is. So friends, may we begin the spiritual and possibly the literal practice of foraging. In the name of God, the creator, the redeemer, and the sustainer. Amen. Well, we hope that you've enjoyed this week's message, and we look forward to seeing you soon. If you listen from afar and you would like to support the work that we are doing in East Atlanta and on Atlanta's east side, you can visit our website, www.eastsideatl.org, and find our giving portal there.